That's right, Michael. You can handle this. If you need any tips, I'll help you. You can grab the lightweight champion of the ghetto. Sit down, JJ. Nobody's teaching him how to fight. But, Ma, I can help him. Because ain't nobody going to pick up fight with the brother of kid Dynamite! I just wanted to let you know about my study group. Oh, don't be a fuddy-duddy. I'll be your study buddy. I'm about to embark on one of the great challenges of my scientific career. This work right here is going to change history. I think this is going to be our greatest mission. I don't have time to study. I'll never get into Stanford. I got big plans for you tonight. I got maps. I got charts. I'm going to see you through this because my credibility is on the line. It's at this point that you'll want to start taking notes. Welcome to The Sitcom Study, the podcast where we contemplate the TV shows we grew up with and search for the truth and wisdom within the tropes and cliches. And today we are stealing ourselves, we're clenching our fists. What are we talking about today, Amy? Or possibly running and hiding. Today we are confronting bullies. So we are watching Good Times, Season 2, Episode 24, The Lunch Money Ripoff, Silver Spoons, Season 1, Episode 4, Me and Mr. T. Everybody Loves Raymond, Season 4, Episode 13, Bully on the Bus, and Hannah Montana, Season 1, Episode 23, Schooly Bully. Now, just to be clear, was that an impression of Mr. T saying me and Mr. T? Or is that your version of Ricky Schroeder? Uh, I think neither. I think that was just when I think Mr. T. I feel like you have to say it as Mr. T. You got to get tough. Yeah. So before we get to the shows, just real briefly, what is your experience with bullies? Were you picked on as a kid? Were you a bully around the schoolyard? What are we dealing with here? I have a really good bully story. Are you ready? Strap in. So there was a girl who was a twin in my grade. Well, she was supposed to be in the grade ahead of me. She was held back and her twin was Classic allowed to go recipe. on. Right? So she was friends with all the older girls and she was not very smart and she was mean and angry because of her situation in life. And bigger, presumably. And bigger. Other. Yes, exactly. So she did not live in my neighborhood. She lived in a neighborhood on the other side of school, but she and her friends figured out that I went home a certain way and so I'm from the generation where we rode our bikes to school by ourselves like that was a totally normal thing and one of the parts on my way home from school was a bridge a little bridge over a creek because I grew up in Florida like Stephen King's it I can see where this is going and so I rode I they blocked off the bridge they they rode ahead of me on like after school one day blocked off the bridge and were trying to like throw my bike in the creek and pushed me down and all this stuff so I make up a whole story and I start crying and I tell them that my daddy's coming home to this afternoon and I haven't seen him in a really long time. Uh-huh. So you appealed to their mercy. Yes. yes. And I and and some of this was a little bit true, right? My dad had been on a business trip the previous week. He was home and I wasn't estranged that's, from that's my father. Make right? up a good lie. Exactly. Kernel a, of truth. Kernel of truth. So yeah, so like I did this whole act and got, um, and they, like I saw, they, like their faces like melted and they started feeling really bad and not realizing that like maybe this little prissy girl has a hard life too. And they let me go and I'm such a fucking asshole that as I'm riding away, I set myself up for bullying for the rest of the year. I was like, ha ha, got you. 
and rode yeah. up the hill. All right. So no sympathy for the future beatings after that. No, not really. <laughs> I have a bully story, too. Real fast. There was an older kid who, yeah, used to chase us around. You know, his name was Eddie, who I think that's the name of the, the bully in good times. And my friend Chris and I, he lived next to the elementary school or close by. So it was kind of a novelty that we would go to the school after the school hours, but when the after school activities were happening. And for some reason, we got in our head that we were going to go to the school when Eddie was in some after school activity. And just in case he gave us any trouble, we brought knives. My friend Chris, oh he was one gosh. of these kids. He had older brothers. So he was that kind of kid where he had access to this stuff and he knew things that the rest of us didn't know. And so he had these like butterfly knives that were like a secret from his parents That's and everything. Terrifying. Oh, yeah. Like, and I was not into this kind of stuff, but, you know, I was like, okay, cool. So we went to the school with these knives and we called them sticks. That was our code word. <laughs> we said, if we have to talk about them, just call them sticks. And so I remember taunting this bully kid out from, from the hallway as he was in the art room doing some sort of after school activity. And so he left and started chasing us and we just bolted out of the school. We're like running down the, the yard, like the big lawn in front of the school with this kid chasing us. And I remember yelling, Chris, get the sticks. Like we were about to whip out these knives. Oh my God, Jay. And then like, you know, some, the teacher called like, Eddie, get back here. Stop bothering them or something. And, and so the whole situation went away. But I always think about that. Like, what the hell were we going to do? Stab this kid? Wave the knives around to scare him? I have no idea. But that, you know, I had a childhood with lots of not necessarily being super popular. But that, that was the only instance I can think of where there was like an outright bully and a plan to defeat him. And it was a crazy plan. Yeah. Wow. That is insane. <laughs> yeah. So we're both bringing our respective uh, histories to this. Our nerdiness, as yeah. it were. So let's get into good times. This is uh, our first time talking about this show. This is a Norman Lear show like... All in the Family. Yeah, it's a spinoff of All in the Family. Yes. So, well, it's a spinoff of a spinoff. It's the first spinoff of a spinoff in television history. Norman Lear created All in the Family. Off from that spun Maude. And Esther Roll, who plays the mom in Good Times, was the maid in Maude. And they spun her off into her own series with her husband and did a little retcon, right? Because... Maud was taking place in Tuckahoe, New York, which is just up the street from us. Yep. And when they spun off the Evans family into their own series, they were in the Chicago projects. Chicago. Yeah. And so it's interesting how he does that just like Gary Marshall. They have their little TV universe. And I'm starting to notice now that we've covered a handful of uh, Norman Lear shows, Gary Marshall shows, and... Charles, Charles and Burroughs shows the guys behind Taxi and Shears that, you know, you have all of these sort of super producers or TV moguls, you know, all these shows are roughly contemporaneous 70s, 80s. 
And I'm starting to see these different styles. So like Norman Lear, they, they all tend to gravitate towards the working class, everyday people. But I think Norman Lear has the biggest emphasis on that, whereas the Gary Marshall sensibility gets into the Americana and the nostalgia and stuff like that. Norman Lear's like, no, I want to focus on the hard scrabble, real people like you and me, or even the people down the road that are maybe a little bit worse off than you and me. And also from a production point of view, I can see the difference. Like I, I feel like the Norman Lear shows are shot on video, whereas Gary Marshall's are shot on film. That's just my supposition. I don't know that for sure. There's a different, there, there's like a little bit of a flimsiness to the, to the Norman Lear shows, you know, where it's, the sets, the, the whole vibe of it is just a little bit more kind of ramshackle and thrown together, whereas the Gary Marshall ones kind of look a little bit like a Norman Rockwell magazine cover captured on film. Yeah, I think Norman Lear's thing is really focusing on the class and what is it like to live in America in this society of people, right? Like in this class of people. Yeah. And so it's really interesting just reading briefly about it, how, you know, it's this very prickly nuanced situation where Norman Lear in many ways is sort of a a champion to these working class black communities that get to finally be sort of represented on TV in these shows. But what you see happening in Good Times is almost like a predecessor to the Steve Urkel thing, where you have this J.J. Walker character who comes on the set and says, Dynamite, and everybody laughs. And then you cut to like three or four years later, and this character has taken over the show and all of the actors are furious because this thing that's supposed to be giving the world a glimpse into what it's really like to be a working class black family living in the projects has turned into this freaking minstrel show with this guy spouting idiotic phrases and jumping around and like the whole thing is is just kind of a joke. Right. And that you're speaking to exactly what uh, particularly John Amos and Esther Roll would they were very both very vocal about their dislike for the direction that the show was going and john amos was the first to fall victim to this right at the end of season three his contract was up for renewal and he was not as vocal at the time as esther roll had been about his distaste but he had made some comments and norman lear called him into the office and was like you're not going to be your contract isn't going to be renewed so he was fired and killed off as the patriarch of the show at the end of season three or i guess the beginning of season four he was killed in a car accident in mississippi off screen and so now we have a situation where we have a fatherless family right like a big part of this show was supposed to and in this episode you see this, right? That it's, we are different. We're trying to make it work. We're a a couple. We're here for our kids. It's not another fatherless family in the projects, right? Like we are, we're working hard and we're trying. Now, JJ was 18 years old, never had a job, got more buffoonish as the time went on and they kept making him stupider and stupider. You know, just like we talk about with Joey on Friends, it was like they become these like man-child idiots, like, you know. And so... And the, like you said, it was Urkelized, right? Where that character started taking over the show. So 
So John Amos exits at the end of season three. At the end of season four, that's when Esther Roll quits. She says, no, no, thank you. This is not the way you would take my family. This is not like this is not how this show should be going. They married, they remarried her to some guy who was an atheist. A a really big part of this show was that was their, the family religion. And they had her running off to Arkansas or something with this new man and leaving her kids behind. So now her oldest daughter and their neighbor was like helping to raise the family. That's when Janet Jackson joined. She was like an abused child that lived in the neighborhood that they took in. So it's like, you know, the show as the two main characters, Florida and James, predicted around season one, two, when you have most of your writer's room being white people writing a black experience, it's not going to go down the way you want. And everybody was too excited to lean into the dynamite ratings and the funniness of it all instead of telling the story that these people were originally hired to tell. Yeah, definitely. And you see, in a sense, just that sort of general jumping the shark of all these shows. We were talking about it with Laverne and Shirley and everything, how this it just seemed like it was in the air, you know, late 70s, early 80s. The sitcoms were just kind of losing their way. But we don't have to worry about any of that with this episode. That's all preface. This episode of Good Times, season two, episode 24, The Lunch Money Ripoff, is back in the sort of good old days, you know, where it's the normal show, it hasn't gotten all weird yet. So this episode begins with Michael, the younger kid, right? This this family has three kids. They're two older teenagers and a younger boy, Michael. He's like 13. And he's getting bullied by Eddie in the elevator of their housing project, right? This is the sort of situation that we're dropped into is that he gets his, you know, 25 cents for milk or whatever every day. And he goes into the, to the elevator of their housing project. And this, this kid about the same age as him, a little bit bigger, maybe a little older, grabs him, give me your money or whatever. But the first thing I noticed is that Michael is not a pushover, you know, like he's got some moxie to him. And I don't know if this is just the world of living in the projects where you're not sheltered. You're not going to be terrified at the idea that some kid might hit you or something, but he tells him like, screw you, get your own money. I do, you know, my, I, I get hungry too, you know, but at the end of the day, he, he gets his money. Sure. He's not, he gives in to him cause he is like the bigger bully kid or whatever. But, um, also he fights back and he's like, come on, man, you know, leave me alone. And um, one of the things I noticed about the the kid who plays Michael, he has that like, he's like an actor. You know what I mean? He has this sort of like very presentational style. So of course I looked him up. He's a Broadway kid. Okay. The, the He was discovered, this is only his like first television show ever. He was in the um, Raisin in the Sun musical that they did in the 70s that was called Raisin. Hmm. And that's where he was discovered. And I think Norman Lear and some of the casting people or whatever saw him on that, in that and put him in this. Yeah. Uh, so he comes home and is trying to play it cool. It comes out that Michael's being bullied. And so the whole family kind of, you know, gets in on this conversation. And this is going to be a very interesting thing, I think, to track across these different shows, because we get all these different approaches and solutions, both within the shows and then, you know, from one to the other. So this is our dynamite for this episode, right? Uh, JJ 
Presumably in other episodes, he gets stories of his own. But in this case, he's just here to be the peanut gallery. So he just says something like, ain't nobody going to pick a fight with the brother of kid dynamite, right? That's his contribution. The dad, on the other hand, says, uh, you got to tell him I'm not giving you my lunch money. And if he doesn't go for that, drive on his face, he says. Like, he just says, straight up, fight him. Right. Michael says, no, I have an idea. Just wait and see. And so the first act break before we go to commercial is Michael coming back home after school. The family's like, oh, you look good. No bumps and bruises. I guess you beat up that kid. And he's like, no, I invited him to come here. Everybody, may I present Eddie? And then, you know, it it just struck me how you know, these shows with the commercial breaks and everything, it's just a whole different vibe that really plays into how they tell the story. Because the scene ends with open the door, Eddie comes in, he's like, hey man, this is a cool crib. The family is horrified. How could you invite the bully here? And then you just freeze on that and the scene ends. And so the whole way, the whole humor that it plays out is just different in this age where we need to have a big reveal and then just freeze and we're almost going to start over again when we come back from commercial. Yeah, for sure. And what you didn't mention, though, in the prepping Michael for how to deal with the bully is you have Florida, the mom, trying to say, you know, can you talk to him? What if you hit it in your, you know, what if you hid your money in your shoe? What if you did this? Like trying to find all these ways to avoid the situation. So you do have both voices, right? right? So this is always... Like that conversation of like the advice that parents give to their kids on how to handle bullies, that is so challenging for me. We've talked about this. You know, I work at a school. I You do see these things, but oftentimes with the bully stuff, you don't see all the bully stuff, right? Like that's what, you know, like both of our stories were happening outside of school. They would be terrible bullies if they did it when the teachers were watching. Exactly. And so, so often this stuff is not in view of adults, right? But yet adults are the ones that that like have to give the kids the advice of how to handle it. And it's always so hard for me because of course, like if you tell Michael to go back to school and punch this kid in the face, Michael isn't a bully. He's not going to do it in a smart place, just like you guys didn't with your knives. You took them to the school campus to try to taunt this guy, right? Like, the kids who aren't bullies aren't trying to be sneaky. They're the ones who usually end up getting in trouble, right? And so if Michael did that and went back and punched him in the face because he'd been being hassled in the elevator... Well, then he would end up being in a lot of trouble. And then then it sets up this dynamic between the parents and the school. The school is like, um, your son punched somebody. And they're like, yeah, but he's been being bullied. And they're like, we're not seeing that. And so now it's like, well, the parents are like, the school doesn't understand my kid. I give my kid better advice. And the advice is to be violent. And the school's like, oh, my gosh, what am I dealing with? So it's such a challenging situation. I was just so glad that we moved quickly on to the next piece because I don't have an answer for that. Well, that's the thing. And that's what is so hard about this topic. And we talked about this a little bit with the Charles and Chaz episode because he was in a similar thing. He had a girlfriend that wanted him to to preach nothing but peace and understanding to the kids, even though it was not really appropriate to the situation. The truth is there is no answer or at least no blanket answer 
for situations like this, right? Whether you're talking about a schoolyard bully or a dictator in a country or a domestic abuser or a toxic work situation or whatever, it's just not as simple as you always need to stand up for yourself or you always need to, you know, connect with the person. And, and you know, like it's the bottom line to me is, and this is the sort of thesis behind every zombie movie, every dystopia if you can't rely on the decency of other people, all is lost. You know, like we cannot live or function as a society, as individual people, if we can't trust that the guy standing next to us is not going to punch us in the face. Right. And so what Michael chose to do was rely on the decency of other people and offer that invitation. So now Eddie has been invited to stay with them for the weekend. Yeah, and he's his whole attitude towards it is interesting because he's kind of happy. Like you you get the sense immediately this this kid is effectively homeless, right? Or is you know, living in a situation with poverty and not a lot of, you know, family stability. Right. He describes it himself. He says, "Oh, in my house we sleep six to a bed." Right. And I go, you know, they were like, do you need to call your mom to let her know where you are? And he was like, no, I stay out for days at a time. And so does she. Right. He's clearly hungry, even though he's stealing the kids milk money. So you get the sense that whereas in other situations, kid might be like, screw you. I'm not going to hang out with your family. Are you crazy? This guy is like, oh, like decent apartment, warm meal, television set, whatever. Like, sure, I'll stay here. And it's the dad, John Amos, who, by the way, if you don't know who we're talking about, he's the girlfriend's dad in Coming to America, the proprietor of, of McDonald's or something. Mm-hmm. But they're all like, what the hell are you doing? You can't invite this kid here. But the mom is like, no, no, let's let's show him some compassion and welcome him to our family. That's right. And the dad is not having it. He's like, and JJ too, they're both like, this kid is a hoodlum. He's gonna, I know kids like this. Like the dad even says, I know kids like this. They're animals. They're just gonna steal things. They never, like, there's no hope for them. And the, and Florida is like, shame on you. You know, of course there's hope for them. And if everybody gives up on them, then nobody's gonna, like, he's never gonna get any better. So, you know, no kid is an animal. Let's let this child stay for a little while. Yeah, it's interesting how she and Michael have that same tendency. And Michael, the the kid, he, he it's innate, you know, like his mom didn't give him this idea. He came up with this solution and he thinks of it as strategy. You know, he said beforehand, I'm going to use my brain's to figure this out. So it's not even like, oh, I'm I'm just such a good Christian that I show compassion or anything. He thinks like this is the smartest way to approach this. Yeah. He probably read a book at some point that said, keep your enemies closer. Mm, yeah. So they, they sit down to have dinner. The mom says, Eddie, would you like to say the blessing? Which I thought was a little much. Like, come on. It, th- this kid probably does not have any like prayers or blessings ready to go. But I did appreciate what the mom says. You know, we were not a say grace family by any stretch. But the mom's sort of secular explanation of this is like, well, if nothing else, it's the one time in the day when we all have the same thought. And I was like, oh, that's kind of nice. It's like this sort of family meditation where it's like their minds are synced up for a minute or two. That is nice. Yeah. 
Um, so anyway, Eddie says, no, I'll pass. And then Michael gives the blessing, which is nice. You know, he blesses everybody at the table and, and whatever. And Eddie's kind of looking around during the whole thing, just like, you know, it's it's a moment for us as the audience to kind of like be let into him being incredulous that a family actually does this like they do in the movies. Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of his impression of the whole situation. It's like, geez, like people really live like this. So the reason why I describe this episode as psychotic is because I don't even remember what the exact catalyst is, but the dad... The not studying. Okay. So they, like he, they were going to, after dinner, go and study. And Eddie begs off and is like, ah, I'm good. I'm going to let you study, Michael. I'll go over here and starts walking back towards the bedroom. And the dad's like, no, you're not. You're here to study. That's why you were invited. Go sit down. Well, I don't really feel like studying. And then we go to, oh, you're going to get a whooping. Yeah. The dad's like, uh, he says something about extending the belt, right? And Eddie, the bully kid, is like, what are you talking about? You're not my dad. You can't spank me. You're not going to hit me with the belt. And John Amos, the dad, is like, the hell I won't. And so he physically takes the kid, takes him into the bedroom and slams the door. And the rest of the family is like, is he going to spank him? Yeah. <laughs> Is he really going to spank him? And the mom's answer is, are beans green? (laughs) (laughs) And so, yeah, they don't show us the spanking. They cut to... No, you hear it, though. Yeah. We have this, like, long shot on the family, and the family's kind of making jokes like, oh, I wonder if they'll give him the Big Mac, or if he'll just get, you know, like, what kind of whooping he's going to get. I don't know what the legality is of beating with a belt a kid that you met that day that lives in your housing project. Uh, but yeah, we, we hear it off camera and then it cuts to the bedroom and the, you know, sort of post belting where Eddie is kind of like rubbing his rump and, you know, the dad's putting his belt back on. And, uh, you know, Eddie's like, my, God, I can't believe you did that. And the dad's like, well, I would do it even harder if you were one of my kids. And Eddie's, you could see it register on his face. Like, wait, you would beat me harder if I was closer to you in your family. And they come back out and the other kids are joshing him. Like, ah, yeah, I guess he got it pretty good, whatever. But the the family is trying to express this idea. Like now, now that you've been beaten, like you're welcome to stay and continue studying. Like we, we like you, you know, and it's, it's you're like, now, you've been initiated, yeah, right? You're yeah. now part of the family. Cause you got a whooping. Yeah. It's, it's like Eddie is little by little internalizing this idea of what it is to be a family and specifically this idea of discipline and right. that, the parents being all strict and even what I think would now be considered physically abusive right. is all part of this this relationship and this this love that they have for each other. Yeah. And I think, you know, so to take our like 2020s mentality, right, to this very 1970s storyline is to say that, yes, I know today there are some people who just absolutely never, ever spank their kids. Right. But I also know that there are people today where a paddling is something that happens, right? And I'm not here to judge you for your parenting. So, you know, you go ahead and make your own decisions for your own family. 
The thing that I think that rings true here is exactly what you're talking about, Jay, is the idea of discipline, right? And I'm giving you a punishment, whatever that punishment may be, in whatever sign of the times is acceptable, right? That I'm giving you this punishment because I care about you learning a lesson so that you'll do better in the future. That's what's trying to be said here. The part of why it is so striking, again, is because this kid has a mustache. You know, these are teenagers. And so it is, you know, like, I don't even know if what a did this dad physically restrain him? Like, I don't even know how this Well, they don't show out. us that, but they do show us Eddie tries to get out of the bedroom and the dad pulls yes. him back by the shirt and they don't replace his shirt. Like his shirt for the rest of the episode is ripped from that one scene where he yanked him back in, which I thought was funny because it was like, no, he was trying to get away. So yeah, it is super complex. But yeah, like I said, just the, the whole situation, given the age of the kids and everything does come across as bizarre. But nonetheless, the message totally rings true. The mom says to the dad at one point, if things keep going the way they are for him, by the time he's 18, he will be in jail or dead on the street, right? So I feel like it is very much trying to hammer home that idea of like a strong family and maybe in particular a strong father figure is like the sort of key element to these these kids being okay, And yeah, in this world, in this time and place, the beatings with the belt through your teen years, I guess, is part of that whole ethos. Right. But anyway, I think moving forward, the the thing that we want to track the most is that this episode represents the appeasement strategy. Right. They turn the other cheek, open your arms, you know, extend mercy and compassion and try to diffuse the situation that way. And that's not what we're going to get in the next show. So let's move on to Silver Spoons. Silver Spoons, Season 1, Episode 4, Me and Mr. T. Yeah, I have to say, I wish that the episode wasn't called that. Just so you, was, I wish it was a surprise as yeah, well. Yeah, even, I, I want it to be a surprise even to the listeners of our podcast when we explain the direction that this story takes. But needless to say, if you've ever heard of Silver Spoons, we are obviously moving to the completely different end of the socioeconomic strata. That's right. Because, so Silver Spoons is about a dad and a son. The dad is a wealthy heir and lives in a mansion and doesn't work and just wants to like have fun. He's a venture capitalist of some kind because he gets these letters saying, I have an idea for a business. Sure. But his whole thing, right? He and this plays out over the series that like his dad is the one and his grandfather is the one that made all the money. And now he just wants to live and he thinks that money should be spent to enjoy your life. And his dad wants him to get a job and continue to work. So the idea that he's a venture capitalist is a, is a now notion that we're putting back on it sure. because he has money and he is just having a good time. So he was married for a week in his younger life and did not know that a child was produced from that week-long marriage. And in the first episode or two, he finds out about Ricky Schroeder, his child, and um, goes and picks him up from a, bo- a military boarding school because the mom has sent him off to a military boarding school because she's remarried. And so now he is first-time father to a sort of like sixth grade, you know, age kid. And they're learning their, how to like live their new life together. 
Yeah, this is our first time covering Silver Spoons, but not our first time covering Ricky Schroeder because he played the little uh, future date rapist in Punky Brewster. That's right. Yeah, so this was a Saturday morning sitcom. So not unlike Small Wonder, we're sort of grading on a curve a little bit. We understand that these Saturday morning shows are not necessarily for families even. They're for kids. For you kids. Know? And the whole sensibility, the whole production style is going to be a little bit different. If I was talking about the cheap video in the Norman Lear things, these shows look like they were filmed, you know, with your camcorder or something. They're just the whole the whole production is just not, you know, not on the level of Cheers or Taxi. But so this one, I wasn't a big Silver Spoons kid. I always I always knew of it, but I think I found the concept kind of annoying. I feel like Ricky Schroeder is almost like if I felt like Tony Danza and Scott Bayo had a little bit of a rivalry with the Charles and, and Tony thing, I kind of feel like Zach Morris and Ricky Schroeder were a little bit of like a, you had to choose your sides. I don't know. Well, one created the other, right? Because this show, Silver Spoons, was like 82 to 86. Yeah. And then as Ricky grew up, he became, moved to California and became Zach Morris. Like that right. that could be a totally normal trajectory for right, this. Because the kids are about the same. Kids are about, yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, about the same age, I guess. Right. So yeah, this show, I'm kind of in the same boat as you, not with the distaste. I liked this show, but because it was on, like I was two in 82 and I was six in 86 when it kind of went off the air. So I came to it later on when it was in reruns. And so I, you know, similar with Punky, Brewster like I knew about it and I watched it but I watched it in reruns so I never saw it in any order and not that that matters for these types of shows but yeah and but I never like I've never seen all the episodes I consider myself a fan you've never then, binged silver spoons I never oh, binged silver God. spoons I know I'm such a plebe um but so but yeah so like I liked this show but somebody had to remind me that Alfonso Ribeiro was on it later on because I just you know I haven't seen a lot of it yeah so this one begins with again immediate mention of milk money just like in good times you know this is kind of a bygone concept but in the old days you got your milk money before school every morning did you not have milk money I think we probably did but we called it lunch money we didn't have specific milk money per se so yeah, Ricky is having his milk money taken, but unlike Michael, this is a class-wide situation. There's a bully who's systematically terrorizing the whole class. He walks into the room and has them all put their heads down and put their money on the table, and he walks down the rows systematically collecting their lunch money. And I guess in the tradition of Michael from Good Times, Ricky is not... A wimp about it. The whole story is set in motion because he comes home with a black eye because right. he did challenge the bully unsuccessfully. And, uh, you know, when the dad asks, like, so you you told the bully you weren't going to give him your money? Yeah, I did. But he probably didn't hear me because he was stepping on my face at the time. Right. You know, so he has tried and failed to confront the bully. To confront the bully. And his big thing, what he does, because we don't see the first confrontation. We just see him come home with the black eye, right? 
But what we see then later in the in the subsequent confrontations is that he really tries to get the whole class yes. to stand up to the bully. Well, that's another strategy. Yeah, and the and the class is like you're on your own, man, because he's the new kid, and he yes. only has like one or two friends so far. Yes, that is part of the whole thing looming over all of this. Is that again, like Michael, you know, sort of wise beyond his years. Ricky has chosen to go to public school, even though he has all of this generational wealth, because he wants that experience. He wants to be a normal kid. And he's setting himself up for all of this ostracization because they all know that he's a rich kid in his class and they don't like him. So he's kind of getting it from all sides because he's got the bully picking on him just like everybody has. And he can't rally any support because except for his friend Clarence, who is very funny, all the other kids resent him because he is rich. And so, yeah, initially when he tries to rally them like a safety in numbers type thing, it doesn't work for that reason. So the dad has a solution that he doesn't tell Ricky, he doesn't tell us, the audience. But- right, because and Ricky tells him to stay out of it. He's right. like, I don't need your help, Dad, because Dad's trying to give him all these ideas. He's <laughs> like, I will handle it myself. Now, I will say, before we even get there, the, the dad has a girlfriend or a wife. So the dad has a personal assistant, and her name's Kate, and they do have like a will they won't they thing that happens over a few this seasons. This is like Grace and Annie. Sure, but it doesn't really, it has, hasn't really gotten started yet. Okay, I only bring that up because... You know, if you think of a show on Saturday mornings made explicitly for kids, you want to make sure you get in at least one joke about a rape whistle, right? Because that's her suggestion is take this rape whistle and blow it whenever you need help. That just, I thought that was kind of insane. Like, why are you saying the word rape on a show that's made for kids? Like it just, the, the 80s mentality, it just, I don't know. Anyway, so the dad says in a very sort of sitcom-y development, I have an idea, dot, 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 and we don't get to find out what the idea is. We go to, you know, the next day at school, we see sort of business as usual. The bully is collecting the kids' lunch money. Ricky stands up and goes, you know, like, screw you, I'm not giving you my money or whatever. And just as the bully is about to beat him up, Mr. T kicks open the door of the classroom and strides in. Talk about a joke before an act break, like something where that just leaves you going like, oh my gosh, what happened? Cut to commercial. (laughs) Mr. T walks into the classroom and menaces the 10-year-old bully. That's right. So what is your Mr. T like understanding? I am glad you asked that because I've been thinking about this a lot. And it's kind of funny, he's he's almost like the opposite of Pee Wee Herman. It's like they both tried to sort of be this person in the public eye. But with Pee Wee, it was like in the movies, Paul Rubens is playing the part of Pee Wee Herman. Whereas, you know, what gave most of us Mr. T was the movie Rocky Three, where it's Mr. T playing the part of Clubber Lang. So... I grew up in the 80s where Mr. T was all over the place. And it's, you know, I didn't watch the A-Team. I didn't, I didn't 
watch the Rocky movies at that time. So I didn't have any direct experience, but this guy was everywhere. He's in commercials. The, the yeah, he was like cereal. Smokey the Bear. He was yeah. like always doing infomercials to like tell you about like how to be safe. Right. And I guess what I realize now, because we're watching this thing, it's an episode of this ridiculous sitcom made for kids, and Mr. T is there. It kind of reminded me of when we were watching The Muppet Show a few weeks ago, and Alice Cooper was on. We were talking about, like, oh, it's kind of subversive that they've got this, like, satanic heavy metal guy on this show that's sort of for kids. But then you kind of realize, like, yeah, but all these guys, whether it's the, you know, scary heavy metal guys or the a tough guy like Mr. T, like, these are all hams you know these are all theatrical guys that are just they're they're campy you know like these are all different variations on camp and mr t like when i look back on it now for all intents and purposes he was a children's entertainer oh yeah for me i did watch the a-team and so i knew mr t that way and he was never scary to me so seeing him in this context where he's supposed to be scary was laughable. I was like, that's so funny. And I don't know. I mean, this is like season one, right? This is the beginning of season. So this would have been like 1982. I I don't know off the top of my head when the A-team was on. So like, I definitely, like I said, saw all of this way later than when it actually aired. And by that point, like you said, when we were kids, Mr. T was ubiquitous as like a public service announcement kind of guy. So he wasn't scary. No, there was the cereal and everything. But that's the thing is when you're seeing all this and you're eight years old, you just assume like, oh, this guy is the real deal. And now when I look back on it, I realize he was a silly character. Like I said, for for kids mostly. But anyway... Don't let him hear you say that. He shows up and when we come back from the commercial, you know, it's... It's working. He is an effective deterrent against the bully. He scares the, the shit out of the teacher. The teacher, yeah. like, can't write anything on the board while he's in the class. Right. So we get, in my opinion, by a mile, the highlight of the episode, which is Mr. T seated in the class with the other kids taking part in the lesson. You know, this is just like... Oh, if you were, you know, the president's kid and you needed to have a bodyguard in school. So, you know, what if they had to take the classes with you? You know, Mr. T is being the kid's bodyguard sitting in the classroom. And when the teacher asks the kids, you know, she asks them a few easy questions and different kids put their hands up and answer them. And then when she asks, like, so what was the cause of the Revolutionary War? And none of the kids put their hands up. So Mr. T kind of sheepishly raises his hand. It was so cute. And she calls on him and he stands up and goes like, well, put simply, the British crown was unfairly taxing the colonists, even though they did not have representation in the government. And he just like, you know. What became colloquially known as taxation without representation. Yeah, he just gives this little answer. And it's just very funny because he has this, like I said, this sort of sheepish, humble way of, you know, presenting everything. But still gruff because he's still Mr. T. Yeah. And so basically the kid goes home and says like, dad, What the hell did you do? Why did you hire Mr. T as a bodyguard? Right. So they kind of get into it a little bit. And Mr. T is sort of standing there watching this all because, you know, Ricky is like, you need to fire him. I don't like this isn't okay. I want to fight my own battles. And the dad is like, no, no, just arguing, arguing. 
Well, so then Mr. T takes Ricky's side and kind of gets into the dad's face. This is a very effective argument because the dad is like, look, the kid that's picking on Ricky is bigger than him. So you can't be advocating for Ricky to challenge this kid. If he's smaller, he's going to get hurt. So what Mr. T does, being the master of Socratic technique and, you know, reverse psychology, he starts getting the dad angry, right? He starts kind of needling the dad to the point where the dad's like, all right, that's it, Mr. T, you and me, let's do this. And Mr. T's like, aha, so you want to fight me even though I'm bigger than you and I can easily beat you up. And the dad's like, yeah, so? And he's like, well, that's why your son wants to take on the bully. Yeah, why don't you let him fight his own battles just like you're doing right now? Yeah, it's also funny that at one point, Mr. T says, I've never lost a class. So in the world of Silver Spoons, Mr. T is a professional bodyguard. Like this is his job. So the next day at school, Ricky pulls a William Wallace, right? He finally does rally the other kids and is like, look, we don't need Mr. T. Safety in numbers. All we need to do is stand up to this bully and not give him our lunch money anymore. And, uh, you know, we have more of this amazing sitcom fight choreography, right? Well, so yeah, all the kids kind of one at a time stand up, right? Because the bully is up in the front of the classroom before the class starts. So all the kids are there before the teacher is there. That's when this always happens. And he has this whole setup where the kids put their money on the corner of their desk and he just walks down in between each row and Mm -hmm. slides it into his hat. And then he goes and sits down and the class starts and everybody's quiet. Well, Ricky's been messing this up because he says no every day. So this time, Ricky gets up into the front of the class, tries to rally everybody, and the kids once again say no. And so the bully comes up and they're all sort of in that open space at the front of the class. And the bully's like about to hit him and Ricky's friend stands up. Clarence. I noted Clarence because at one point he says... You know, I I can't keep giving my money to this bully. I'm sick of eating cookies and water for lunch. And I thought that was funny. (laughs) So, yeah. So Clarence is the first follower, right? He stands up first and is like, you know what? No, don't hit my friend. And so then all the kids kind of come out of their desks and crowd around him because he doesn't back down. He says yeah, he's, he's still like, I can beat, beat up three of yous. I can beat up five of yous. Right. And so he goes to do that. And then all the kids are like, no. And just sort of like, they don't even really even push him. Right. They just kept no, they're all, walking. They're menacing him. But it's so funny because some of these kids are so uncoordinated. Okay. They can't even clench their fists properly right they just like all get around him like i'm imagining you know how what how bees like keep their hive safe they just surround like the wasp and they buzz them until it gets really hot Mm -hmm. that's basically what these kids were doing (laughs) they like just got around the bully and they just kept giving him like menacing looks until he sits down in a desk yeah he basically says like all right you you, yeah." yeah and so ricky goes home They have this sort of standard sitcom, you know, debriefing father-son moment. I just thought it was so funny. The dad goes, I'm kind of new at this father stuff. I'm going to make mistakes once in a while. Yeah, like hiring Mr. T as a bodyguard. Like, it's so funny that he's talking about it as though, like, oh, sorry, I forgot to, uh, you know, make you eat your vegetables or something. Like, as though it's a normal parenting mistake. No, it's a very normal parenting mistake for an eccentric 
billionaire who has a who is a child himself right yes. like that's the thing of this show is that they're kind of growing up together really ricky is more grown up already than and the dad is yeah the dad has the interior design sensibility of a tgi fridays i noticed that there are traffic lights in the living room and kind of like iCarly. yeah yeah similar to a spencer shea uh, sensibility but yeah, so in terms of tracking the trope, again, vastly different approach here. We've got the the ultimate solution is the the safety in numbers thing, the right. sort of, you know, rallying the troops and, you know, again, like a sort of William Wallace or any number of, you know, slave rebellions or anything like that. You've got, you know, let's there are more of us than there I are of them. I am Spartacus. Yeah, exactly. And then you also have the dad's approach, which is buying your way out of the situation. Or just uh, to more of the sitcom world of it all, the parents getting involved. Yes. Yes. Trying to deal with it sort of by fiat from above uh, instead of letting the kids sort it out by themselves. So, yeah, lots going on here. Now let's move to Everybody Loves Raymond. Everybody Loves Raymond, Season 4, Episode 13, Bully on the Bus. Yeah, so this is our first time talking about Everybody Loves Raymond. This is another one of those shows that came out during the sort of too cool for school phase in our lives, I feel like, where we weren't watching, or I, for one, wasn't watching a ton of TV sitcoms. And yeah, at that time, I think Ray Romano was kind of like, all right, so there's this stand-up comic that I was never that into, and now he's the woolly mammoth in these annoying Ice Age movies, and he's got this TV sitcom. Like, I just kind of turned up my nose at this whole thing and sort of considered it, you know, kind of emblematic of the kind of TV that I wasn't watching. Yeah, uh, this is definitely one of those sitcoms that I love to hate. Ray Romano, people really like him. I think he's funny sometimes. I don't know. But this whole dynamic of this show is, you know, oh, I'm so put upon by my wife and oh, I'm so put upon by my mom and my family. And sometimes I'm on her side and sometimes I'm on their side. And it's just not anything that A, I was relating to when I was in my early 20s or B, that I even relate to now. Yeah, I think Ray Romano as an actor has been vindicated a little bit in, in recent years, like he showed up on the TV version of Get Shorty, which was actually really well received and a handful of other things like people are kind of like, I feel like he's having a little bit of a, of a resurgence. But yeah, I think I felt the same way about this show when it was out. And here's what I will say now, having seen it a few times, is that it is not nearly as much of an offender in terms of the feel-bad, mean-spirited humor that that we tend to react that way to. It's, it's not nearly as bad an offender as Married with Children or oh, some of the no. other shows. Yeah, and it's in a different era, yes. I would say. What, what I've noticed is, uh, and we can talk about it as we go through the episode— the relationship with Ray and Deborah and all of their marital foibles and conflicts is actually there. There's a lot there, uh, and and I think it's it's portrayed compassionately and interestingly. Yeah, and she I, definitely has more of a voice than like. Yeah, what, you know, Kevin James's wife and whatever. What, what I'm trying to say is it's the grandparents that are the problem. Right. It's Peter Boyle and the wife. 
those characters and their relationship is the isn't it funny when an old married couple hates each other humor. It is the comedy of vitriol and anger. Oh yeah, like I I've, I've been I've been stuck with you for so long kind of a thing. It's like the Bundys got old and her grandparents. Yes. That's their dynamic. But even that, like that's one of those things that I just I'm like it's a trope that I tend to ignore. The thing that gets under my craw about this is the whole situation of Ray and his mom and how she is so just like constantly manipulative in their life and how I don't I don't know that I've ever known a mom that's like this you know what I mean like they just make her into this awful person and then the parallel is that's what Deborah's becoming as well and that's it just that's the ick that I get from this show and it is totally of its time right and if you were to if you were to sit it up in line or line it up with all of the other bad comedian guys who got a sitcom and nothing happened with their wives they were just there as you know arm candy and some like fodder for jokes this one would be better than all of those but it's still the top of a shit pile yeah i mean for better or worse it's about their marriage i think that's the difference right. home improvement is about a guy with a tv show and also how that relates to his his marriage but this is like it's it's all focused on that and yeah i think it's the thing of like what what all of these sitcoms going back to the honeymooners, you know, going back to the very beginning are trying to hit on is, you know, we're all flawed. Our relationships are flawed. Our families have strife and conflict and we get on each other's nerves and to to sort of bring that out in the open and have it be fun and funny and have the TV version of that be a little bit heightened and stepped up is a very healthy impulse. And it allows everybody to kind of see ourselves in those characters and say like, oh, okay, everybody kind of gets on, the, on each other's nerves the way that we do. And everybody has these problems. And yeah, it, there was a point where some of them, it, it, turns and it it goes from let us reflect that on you to like okay so it's funny when people in a family don't get along or when a married couple uh bickers with each other or when a husband doesn't like his wife and so let's lean into that as hard as we can and let's actually now supply you the viewer with with really clever zingers and like it, it's this weird like chicken in the egg thing where it's like now we're teaching you how to be an asshole to your family right you know but what I'm trying to get at is that with those expectations, right, having the sort of image of this show in my mind, I tend to be pleasantly surprised when I watch it. Like I said, the grandparents are a little cringy to me, but the Raymond and Deborah stuff is actually kind of funny and interesting. So let's get into this. Yeah. So this one is different than most Ray Romano episodes because they are dealing with the kids. Like the kids in this show are sort of like you barely see them in episodes. You know what I mean? They might run through a scene once or twice and that's it. But this is about their older daughter 
who is, um, she comes home from school and tells her mom that she's been bullied on the bus. We don't see that because the kids rarely have lines, but the daughter will get a few lines later on in this episode. So Deborah tells Ray when he comes home from work and was like, hey, how was your day? She's like, oh, good. You know, the kids are good. I mean, Allie got a little, you know, is dealing with a bully on the bus, but don't worry, she's handling it. Yeah. So Ray is immediately like, whoa, whoa, whoa. What? Like you, you get this sense right from the start that, Deborah considers this a non-issue and Ray thinks it's a big deal. And he starts talking about, let's think of all the bad things that rhyme with Allie, because this is how bullies work, Deborah. They figure out what your name rhymes with and they use it against you, you know. And then as more family members start to filter in and get in on this conversation, you get this divide where Ray and his brother, Brad Garrett... And their mom and their dad are all like, mount up, we're going to go get this bully. But even that is for different reasons, though, because the two brothers, Ray and Robert, are like, you guys never helped us when we were kids. Like, they have this real empathy for Allie because they were bullied too. Whereas Peter Boyle, the grandpa, he's totally different. He wants to help her because she's a girl. His line, and I may quote, is, Allie's a girl, Nancy. That's what he says when when Brad Garrett asks him, why do you want to help her when you didn't help us? Right, but the mom, Doris Roberts, she's totally different. She's like a mafia mom. She's like, who's her mother? I'm going to, you know, where's her grandmother? I'm going to go talk to their family. Like, she's on it, which is what she did for the boys growing up, which is just another one of these layers of like the boys can't get out from under her yeah exactly so deborah kind of shuts them all down and just like this like a it's nothing to worry about in the first place and b even if it is Allie should deal with it herself she's fine like kids can handle themselves Ray decides he's going to go on the bus. I don't know if we mentioned this is happening on the school bus, right? Not the proper school. So Ray goes, I don't think he initially intends to ride on the bus. I think at first he just wants to go and kind of like have a look. Well, so he thinks that he's going to be able to kind of right away pick out who this bully is and then go and intimidate the bully. And he's doing it against his wife's wishes. Like he acts like he's going off to work in the morning and then goes to the bus stop and waits with Allie. And we have all this awkward, like, dad stuff. The kids are standing there having a nice chat. And then he comes over and the kids are like, what are you doing here? You know, it's even though they're like elementary school kids. So, yeah, he gets on the bus and we have a guest appearance. The bus driver is Janet Dubois, who is a neighbor and good friend on Good Times. We didn't see her in the episode we just watched. But after all of the parents leave due to their um, anger over the writing, she was the one who became like the family matriarch. And she was the one who was there on those last few Hmm. or that last season in particular. But so Janet Dubois plays the bus driver on this episode. And Ray is standing on the stairs of the bus and kind of just peering and she's like I can't, are you coming are you getting off like what are you doing I can't close the door until you're sitting down so then we get the long walk down the aisle of the bus where no one will let the dad sit with them yeah and he's trying to figure out which one the bully is this brought back memories of school bus 
I don't know if I was bullied on the school bus per se, but I do remember it being this sort of lawless world where the kids, the older kids would sit at the back of the bus and they would blast the Beastie Boys on a uh, boombox. Yeah, and I just remember it kind of being like, you're on your own. There's one adult here and they need to drive the bus. So like you lay low and like figure it out. That's right. So you sit towards the front of the bus if you want to avoid the rough and tumble, lawless back end of the bus. That is still true to this day. But so Ray doesn't really accomplish anything, you know, while he's on the bus. He talks to the kids. They don't they they won't connect with him. He doesn't really know what's going on. So he decides to talk to the bus driver. Well, he does figure out who the bully is, right? Because he ends up sitting next to a kid who's like mortified that is that he has to sit next to this adult. So he offers him money to tell him who the kid is that he's looking for, the bully kid. And so he points him out and he goes and he sits next to the bully kid and he like stares him down. And the bully kid's looking at him like, what a weirdo. And the bully kid is a normal looking kid. This is not an oversized ruffian like the kid from Silver Spoons. This is a normal looking eight, 10 year old kid. So the the kids get off the bus and Ray goes to the the bus driver who's been sort of perplexed this whole time why are you doing this and he's like so you're you're aware of the situation with Ali and this this other kid yeah and she's he's like, like yes I am. It, it, well he was like so no bullying today that's pretty good and she's like well yeah p- kids tend not to do it when their parents are here yeah long story short we've got a plot twist in this one she's like yeah there's a bully it's your kid the only thing that that Josh or whoever the kid that Ray was looking for, all that he does is protect his sister from your daughter, who's always making fun of her. She calls her Judy Hootie. She says she looks like an owl because she wears big glasses. And so, yeah, uh, Ray is all of a sudden processing his daughter is like a little Donald Trump. She's like making up nicknames for everybody. And he goes, he goes, well, are you sure that's right? Because if you're looking in that mirror, everything's reversed. I thought that was a funny little <laughs> sitcom line. But she's like, yeah, you know, the, the bus driver is very blasé about this whole thing. She's like, I don't care. None, like, this, none of this concerns me. But if you must know right, your, your daughter. A meanie. And so Ray goes home and tells this to, to Deborah. And that's where we get what I think is the most interesting aspect of it. It's not even the bully thing. It's this whole, like, we would not have been friends in high school. Like, we are completely different social types. You are a mean girl. And you were, what Ray says is, you know, when they're arguing about this later, he goes, I remember people like you standing in your little groups at school, making fun of the kid whose mom showed up to bring his snow pants, you know, and then Deborah does snicker when he mentions snow pants. And so, yes, her attitude is unapologetically, kids pick on each other. It's a part of life. She'll learn to deal with it just like everybody else. And you're being a wuss. Yeah. And I, for one, think she's right. And also, I think one of the things that she was trying to say was, you know, if Allie's the one that's being a tormentor, we'll talk to her about it. But Ray is like, no, you don't understand. We have to sit her down and tell her she's a bad kid. And Deborah's like, no, we absolutely do not. She's being, you know, she's being a little mean. We got to talk to her about that. Like, but that's all. Like, it doesn't need to be more than that. Yeah. What Ray says, it's an interesting exchange. He says, 
Deborah says she's a normal kid and he says normal kids don't pick on other kids and she says what are you talking about so there's this fundamental difference and yeah what it means to be normal and I think again we have later the family getting into it and having their different opinions and I think Deborah's stance is almost like a watered down version of the parents, the the grandparents' stance, which is like they're happy. They're just like in life, you got your your givers and your takers, right? Your winners and your losers. And so, if she's the one picking on another kid, then that's good, right? Then she's being the the alpha or whatever. Yeah, yeah. exactly. There's there's nothing to apologize for. There's nothing to to fix here. And Robert and Ray, again, are like horrified, like this, this is a flaw in character, like our our daughter is a bad person. Right, exactly. And Ray wants to tell her that and like, have this whole heart to heart with his kid. But he doesn't know how to talk to his kid, which we get to see a funny little scene later on where like, both Deborah and Ray are trying to like, yes, have these com- have this conversation with her. And that is like, it, it that is very funny and so awkward. And true, because they're, they're running into the same problem that we were talking about before. Like, there is no coherent stance, you know, like, they, they just struggle to articulate what exactly they want to say. And then it's her that goes, are you saying to be nice? And they're like, yeah, be nice. Right. What the reason that I find that scene both funny and annoying is that they, Deborah and and Ray, are not on the same page before they go to have the conversation with the kid. They haven't solved their fundamental difference before they go to talk to Allie. So they're bickering in front of Allie. So she's getting mixed messages and they're being bad parents because they didn't take the time to have the conversation about what are we going to say to our daughter and fight it out amongst themselves before they go to have the conversation with their daughter. Yeah, they're like, I guess we can agree agree that we want her to stop making fun of this girl. Like, right. I guess, I guess that's what we can, that's our common ground. Sure. But what she takes away from the first conversation that they try to have with her is, well, I'm not going to get bullied anymore. Don't worry. Because she did then get bullied the next day. Yeah. Everybody was making fun of her on the way home, not the next day, on the way home that day, everyone was making fun of her because her dad had come on the bus. Yeah. So then she came home and was upset because she did get bullied that day. So now they're like, oh, no, now she is getting picked on because Ray tried to intervene and turn our daughter into a wuss. And so now Deborah's mad at Ray. Right. And they and they're having this even like bigger argument. And Deborah's whole point is like she's standing up for herself. She's talking and being who she wants to be in the world. Yeah, This is all nature running its course. Right. And like you're not letting that happen because you're getting involved. You know, and we, yes, we do want our daughter to be nice. So, but what she runs away with, Allie runs away is like, well, I'm just going to make up a better, meaner song about Judy Hootie tomorrow. And then everybody will forget that I, that my dad was on the bus and stop making fun of me. Yeah. Again, career in politics. Like she gets it. Yeah. And so how does this one get resolved? Like the. The daughter, like you said, they have that second conversation. The daughter's like, so I guess I have to be nice. And then Ray and Deborah are like, okay, yeah, I guess we did an okay job. And then they come downstairs, everybody's sitting around the table, no kids again. And 
everybody, like the rest of the family, Robert and the parents, are making fun of Ray and Deborah for being bad parents. So, again, I just want to say, you know, in the interest of extending an olive branch to Mr. Romano, you know, I found this all pretty good. This conflict between Ray and Deborah and this whole idea of discovering, you know, that they were different kinds of people when they were younger and that they really sort of react to a situation like this fundamentally differently. I thought that was a very like meaningful, substantive conflict that was not like something you would see on Married with Children or the one with the puppet that was even worse. So again, Peter Boyle and the grandma, you know, having those barbs at each other is unfunny in my opinion. And I always kind of, you know, those are not my my favorite parts of the episode. But on the whole, I liked this. See, and I fall down on the opposite side. I feel like they let me down with, they had a kernel of an idea there that the the two parents come from different types of social circles and they're going to need to try and figure that out. They don't ever figure that out. They offer platitudes to it at best. They have subpar parenting. There is no lesson that comes from this, right? Like we always talk about these sitcoms and what did we learn from them? Well, we don't learn anything from this except to be, how to be bad in a relationship. At one point, Ray says to Deborah, what are you doing around here all day long? You don't work. I thought you were supposed to be being a parent. Like that's some fucking bullshit. Like, and, and so, you know, I'm, I was, I'm very, triggered by the whole thing. No, not not really. But I just I don't find their um, solution to the whole problem actually redeemable because they don't have a real conversation about their relationship. They don't have a real conversation with their daughter. And then they end the episode on the grandparents teasing them again. Like that's a normal life. Nope. Sorry, Ray Romano, you get no rehabilitation from me. Yeah, look, whatever. I'm not going to say it's a masterpiece. And again, it does benefit very much from my lumping it in with those sort of toxic shows and coming to it with those low expectations. All right, moving on to Hannah Montana. This is season one, episode 23. You want to talk about a show that was made for children only. Like Silver Spoons was made, I think, for maybe parents to like be in the room or sometimes see with their kids. This show, no parents around. This was made to get the parents to leave the to room. To leave the room. That's <laughs> how bad this show is. Uh, I wouldn't be that harsh. This was another it's one. It's no iCarly. Well, that's what I was going to say. This is definitely not as good as iCarly. And I didn't watch it in that sort of strange, ironic way as much as I did iCarly. But I was aware of this in the early 2000s when it was around. Yeah, the the aesthetic of these shows, I think the most annoying thing about them is the oppressive fake laughter that they feel the need to slam on every line, every little gesture, every little look and gag and crack gets this like avalanche of fake laughter that just gets i i start to wonder if it's actually a way of padding out the runtime of the show like if the script is only 17 pages and they're just like you know the sum total of all of this dumb fake laughter will give us another two or three minutes yeah the dumb fake laughter and also the um wipes that they do like in between scenes so we don't have we have more like changes of scene then we have commercial breaks to your point earlier so we get these like wipes 
that have, you know, random Hannah Montana stuff on it. Yeah. And well, also, no Hannah Montana in this episode, which was such a bummer. Right. So just to back up a little bit, for all you youngsters out there, there was a guy named Billy Ray Cyrus. And Don't he was my heart. a country my musician heart. in the 90s. I was not a, a fan of his. I did not celebrate his catalog. I was not into country music. You didn't learn the but achy breaky heart line I will dance? say Billy Ray Cyrus and Garth Brooks, right? Those were the two guys in the 90s that really broke through into like mainstream sort of crossover success. Like you would hear them on your top 40. Yeah. And so, you know, in the early 2000s, this Hannah Montana show shows up on Disney Channel. And it's like... And the only people who need that background about who... Miley Cyrus is are old people like us. Everybody else is like, wait, Miley Cyrus had a dad who did music? Like- well, but yeah, my point in bringing that up is just to say, like, this show comes on with this weird premise that you've got this girl who's a uh, pop singer, but she's got this secret alter ego. So she's really Miley, but she pretends to be Hannah Montana. And she's a successful rock star and her dad in the show and her dad in real life is Billy Ray Cyrus. And I think part of the reason why I was a little turned off by this when it first came out is because I was like, what kind of crazy like stage dad stuff is this that Billy Ray Cyrus has invented this weird sitcom on the Disney Channel where his daughter is like this this secret pop star? But... The show is like it has credits created by so and so. Yeah, I think it's so-and-so. the other way around. Exactly. Yeah. I think in reality, it just turned out to be a fun novelty that they could cast her dad in the show to be her dad. And I don't really think it's some kind of crazy nepotism or or anything like that. And the truth is, in the intervening years, I've actually come to really like Miley Cyrus as a pop star. And so. I uh, as a pop star or you like her music. I'm into her in the same way that like, you know, the Paula Abdul and Madonna in the 80s and 90s. Like, I don't think that's great music, but I like some of those songs. And I think she holds her own. And like, I think pop culture will look back on her fondly. Yeah, I find I find her really interesting, Miley Cyrus says, because we've gotten to watch her grow up. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like when when we were in college, that was when the like Britney Spears and the InSync and Christina Aguilera and that last generation of pop stars were coming along. So we didn't really watch them grow up. We kind of grew up with them and all of the things that they were going through in their 20s and, and 30s and whatever. Like we were sort of, you know, if not going through the same things, just like we had friends who were kind of going through the same things. So it's been really interesting for me to kind of watch people like Miley Cyrus grow up and like I can track the way I was thinking about things when I was 25 with then you know 15 years later Miley Cyrus is 25 or 10 years later or whatever Miley Cyrus is 25 
and she's acting in ways that people are being so judgmental about. And I'm like, it wasn't so long ago that my friends were doing stuff like that. Like, everybody needs to take a chill pill. You know what I mean? So it's like, I'm not generationally far enough away from her to, like, have all sorts of judgment on her. But I am, like, a generation enough away to be able to be like, oh, that's a choice you're probably going to regret. Oh, that's a choice you might you might like later on, you know what I mean? And so it's yeah. just been an interesting thing to watch. Well, it's also the problem that a lot of these stars have when they come up in the world of Disney or Nickelodeon or something. It's like they make this deal with the devil where they become a brand name and a celebrity before their 18th birthday because of these TV shows and stuff. And they get this enormous fan base and they have all these opportunities, which is exactly what they want. But then they're like, oh shit, now I'm 20, 22, whatever. And like, everybody still thinks, you know, everybody has this conception of me because I'm from the Mickey Mouse Club or whatever. And what can I do to prove that, you know, that that's not who I am anymore to show that I have some edge, to show that I have some range. And so you get the weird, like, butt-humping performances and stuff. Like, you get the crazy behavior. And in some cases, it's kind of tragic, like the Lindsay Lohans of the world that have to have these really extreme phases of sort of public scandals and stuff because they're like, you know, that they're just so desperate to break out of that sort of innocent image. Yeah. But none of that has happened yet. We're here at Hannah Montana, season one, episode 23. And once again, there's a bully that's taking everybody's lunch money. That's right. She's known as the cracker, which I find hilarious because later on we get Miley's bodyguard, who is a woman of color, who's, you know, calls her the cracker. And I just find that whole thing very funny. But so the girl is called the cracker because she like cracks her knuckles and cracks her neck before she hurts people. If you gave me three guesses why she was called the cracker, one of them would have something to do with race and one of them would have something to do with she cracks other people right. or something. I would not guess that she has that name because she just makes cracking sounds with her own bones and joints. Right. Before she hits someone, she has this like crazy eyes death stare. And then she like cracks her knuckles, cracks her neck, cracks her back, cracks her nose. Like she just is like, and then, and then like puts on her menacing face yeah. and, you know, the next thing we see is the person all mangled or like twisted yeah. in a pretzel or their well, hair is all put up and Yeah, let's talk about that for a second because Lucille Ball, Miley Cyrus ain't, right? <laughs> this this is something they love to do on this show, which is use the cut to sort of trick. So like one of the examples that you're talking about is Miley goes over, tries to pull a Michael from from Good Times, tries to connect with this girl who's sitting by herself because everyone's scared of her. So Miley goes over and says, I don't know what she says. Yeah, Let's you want to come friends. sit with us or something. Right. Yeah. And so this girl, the cracker, is like, okay, can I can I borrow your lipstick? 
And Miley's like, sure, I'd love to. See, we're friends. And then we get a cut, or more specifically, a dumb video flippy effect to Miley with lipstick all over her face. Uh, And I was just like, wow, like, we don't get to see that? Like, we don't get to see, you don't have any ideas for physical comedy of what it might look like for one girl covering the other's face with lipstick. And then later in the episode, Miley gets encapsulated in a salad bar. Yes. Uh, and it's just all these things where it's like, look, I, I get it. You don't have a ton of, of money to work with or whatever, but come on, this could be fun. You know, this could be, this could be fun, physical stuff. Or they're trying to film them in certain periods of time because it's all kid actors and they don't want to take the time to train the kids how to do the physical comedy. Well, that's the thing is to me, it's, it's laziness. It's efficiency. It's just like, come on, come on, go, go, go. You know, I think like we were talking about, these are not filmed in front of an audience. These are pumped out you know and everything is added later in post so yeah there's there's a just like a lack of generosity and like a lack of imagination i think in in how they how they execute these things so yeah miley is covered in lipstick and that's how we know that the cracker doesn't want to be her friend she's going to keep beating everybody up right and so They get involved in something else. Miley doesn't want to be a snitch, so she doesn't want to go tell the principal that this is happening. So they come home from school, and Miley, both of their hair is, like, all tied up in, in like, knots. And her dad and, like, is that her brother? Yeah, her brother is Jackson. So her brother and her dad are away on a fishing trip. So Roxy, the bodyguard, is watching the girls are watching Miley. So this is an interesting wrinkle because unlike Silver Spoons, we have a character that just built into the show has a bodyguard. Right, exactly. And so, but that would blow Miley's cover if her bodyguard How was to like come to school. She must have to deliver a line like this every single episode. She goes like, but Roxy is the bodyguard for Hannah. She can't be around for Miley. You know, there's... I got to think every time, but he has a date with Hannah. What is he going to say to Miley? <laughs> it's the it's the moment in every episode, though. But but yeah. um, so so anyway, so Roxy's trying to get her to just go tell the principal. Like, what do you do when a bully comes after you? You run away and you go tell an adult. And and Miley's like, nope, absolutely not. That's not what I'm going to do. I'm not going to be a snitch. And so Roxy's like, all right, well, then the other alternative is I come and protect you because that's what I'm supposed to do. And she's like, no, you can't. And so she's like, all right, well, then what are you going to do tomorrow when this happens? And she's like, I'm going to run to the principal. And she doesn't. Yeah, Miley wants her to teach her some moves that's, that's right. what she says that's right she wants to t- wants her to teach her some like karate or something yeah because she has uh the one bit of physical comedy we do get is that the bodyguard has the ability to trifurcate a pineapple with a karate chop oh that's right that's right yes but it and yeah she like splits it into quarters or whatever yeah. but just like by looking at it with her like and then she look. like bops it on the top and it falls and apart. It falls apart so she has these like magical moves but she won't teach miley because she's just like no just like stay safe just go tell the teacher don't do anything right and so then she goes back to school the next day 
and the bully immediately is like, yeah, my target's back. So Miley like pretends to be like, wow, I'm going to get you, you know, like doing like her karate moves and nothing happens because the one thing the bodyguard does say is give her like the scary eye, like give her the scary eye. But this bully, that's what she's already doing. So she's not afraid of somebody else's scary eye because that's her move. Yeah. In general, I've noticed there's a little bit of an uncomfortable thing in this show where the two girls, Miley and her friend, will say things in that in the sort of crazy voice of Roxy, the bodyguard. Right. Like they, they like to do that delivery. And I know they're not intentionally doing like a quote unquote black voice, but it sounds like that. Yeah. Like it, it very much sounds like that to me. And it's... I get the impression from this show that a lot was put on this woman, kind of like Spencer and iCarly, that they're like, look, we got a country music singer, we got a bunch of kids. This is not exactly a treasure trove of like comedic acting talent. And so I think, I don't know where they found this woman, but they're they're putting a lot on her to really be the backbone for a lot of the humor, the physical humor, the dialogue, the the crazy voices and everything. And so I think understandably, these girls are just kind of gravitating to her and like sort of absorbing her persona a little bit and so once in a while they take on that crazy voice just because they're kind of like getting into the spirit i think right but it comes across a little cringy it does and it doesn't go so far like you said as them like fully doing an impression of roxy but they're like definitely using the same cadence yeah. in their voice which is different from like the normal sort of drawl that they have But so they go to confront the bully again and they get their hair tied together and then Roxy shows up. Yes, we get another plan that I'm going to quote the little girl from Blackish. It comes (laughs) pre-ruined, right? Roxy, the bodyguard, is, you know, spreading word around campus. There's a new bully in town, the Puma, right? The Puma is Roxy wearing a backwards hat and carrying a skateboard. Right. Roxy, who is a very buxom woman, is now playing a 7th or 8th grader. Now, I have to say, I cannot put a finger on how old this actor is, but I'm going to say at least 30. Yes. And so it's very funny. I just love the idea of the skateboard as the universal signifier of youth. Of being a kid. (laughs) Yeah. Even though they would not let you 10 feet into a school with a skateboard, right? They would take that away immediately from the kids. And if you were an adult, you would be arrested on site for even being there. Right. So Roxy shows up. And what I... what just never like ceases to amaze me about shows like this is middle school kids are the meanest motherfuckers on the planet. You want to talk about bullying? Everybody in middle school is mean. They're all like hormonal little monsters, okay? And and love them to death and also they're horrible. So there is no way that this woman shows up And the middle school kids are running and scampering away because they would all be merciless making fun of her just like they would to the cracker. But whatever, it's fine. We're in the universe of this show and the mean Puma has now arrived and she's gonna 
beat up the cracker so the cracker will leave everyone alone. Yeah, I think what would happen in theory is she would have to substantiate this persona by beating up the kids and then they wouldn't make fun of her. But this is what she does in quotes, right? Because she's so good that she out crazy eyes. Right, she intimidates them. Yes, so she out crazy eyes the crazy eye cracker. Right. And she's and bigger because she's a grown woman. Because she's bigger. Well, actually, she's not very tall. So the cracker is taller, but still. Anyway, so she does that. And that we don't get any like real physical comedy. We just get the intimidation look. And then the cracker runs away and now is neutralized. So with the cracker neutralized, Roxy can go home. But she doesn't leave. Well, because she's only neutralized as long as Roxy is there. Sure. But she's like, okay, well, I'm just going to go. And they're like, oh, no, no, we need you to stay because she's only neutralized as long as you're here. So then she stays and stays and stays and stays until the point where Miley and her friend are like, we can't handle this anymore. She's like always around. We can't do anything. She interrupted us trying to talk to this very... Very cute boy. Yeah, so the situation with Roxy is untenable, right? And so we get another very sitcom-y move where Miley has a plan, but it's the old, I'm not going to tell you what the plan is, just meet me at the cafeteria in five minutes, right? right? So she wants the cracker to be caught in the act, basically. So she spreads the rumor that the Puma, right, Roxy's bully stage name, she's not around anymore, right? She 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 sits down and says something to one of the other kids. Do you remember what the specific scenario is? She says something happened to the Puma. Yeah, it's something about like the principal caught her or whatever. So she's not going to be around for a while. And what she really did, though, was send Roxy on like a wild goose chase to go get her something. And so Roxy isn't going to be there for a while. Right. And so this is all to engineer a situation where the cracker overhears that Miley is a sitting duck now. She doesn't have her bodyguard anymore. So the cracker gets up, cracks herself and goes over to uh, put Miley in the salad bar, like we said before. So the best friend, Emily Osment, was sent to the principal's office to get the principal so that they'll walk in at just the right time. Well, they get delayed. So nobody comes in. Nobody comes to Miley's rescue. She ends up inside the salad bar with like mayo all over her face and smushed up against the glass. And then the friend comes in with with the principal or maybe even not with the principal and then Roxy comes back. So everybody kind of arrives at the same time but it's too late and then you know the principal does find out so the kid does get caught in the act or whatever and so all is solved but then we find out from Roxy that she knew what was going on all along. She was trying to teach Miley the lesson that going to the principal was the right thing in the first place. Yes. Again, very sitcom-y to be like, this was the whole plan. I just had to engineer this situation where I would do something that would make you do something that would make that other person do something. And then that situation would get annoying. So after a while, you would do this other thing and then this would happen. And that's the only way that you would learn that you need to, you know, tell an adult when somebody's bothering you. It's Ocean's Eleven, Hannah Montana. Yeah. So 
We learn that the cracker's name is really Henrietta Laverne. I feel like that is another sub-trope with the bullies. Maybe not a ton in these particular ones, but the idea that the bully is called Ox or... Right, There's you know, a or that the bully, there's a reason, right, that the bully is who they are. They've become, they've taken on this persona because they probably used to get bullied for their name when they were younger. Yeah. So yeah, so that's it. I guess this one... Go to the authorities is the approach that is sort of tell an adult. Yeah. Right. Like if you are if somebody is threatening you and it's not a good thing, tell a grown up. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. It's just funny how I guess they needed all of that just to get past the snitches get stitches mentality. Right. Because they didn't want to tell on her like they didn't want to be a snitch because then they would get made fun of by other people. So they had to or, like orchestrate a situation in which she would just get caught. Yeah. So yeah, looking back on all of these, again, those first two were just such a wild ride in terms of the the goings on. But all of these very different, you know, nice spread in terms of time in terms of like we said socioeconomic situations so what are we thinking here conclusions preferences opinions Uh, i have to say i really enjoyed the one-two punch um of good time silver spoons like to me that was a perfect little like how to deal with bullies kind of a thing where you've got the kid kind of handling it him on his own and then the lesson being learned through welcoming this mean kid into your family and all the like other sort of like politics of that i thought that was really cool and then the second you know the silver spoons being about i'm handling it myself but my parents won't let me like my dad doesn't want me to handle it he's trying to be more of a helicopter parent and i i really i liked that i thought those two if you're gonna if you want to learn how to deal with bullies you got two Really solid answers right then and there. The other two were ridiculous and dumb. And that's why I found it so funny that you called the first two psychotic because they dealt with real issues and real things that happened, Mr. T notwithstanding, but like real things that happened, whereas the other two were annoying, obnoxious, and had nothing to say. No, I, I completely agree, but you can't deny that. that those, those first two were just wild. Like, the experience of watching them and just what happened. Like, just the that scene of, of the dad on Good Times taking the kid into the bedroom and spanking him. And then, yeah, right after that, going from that sort of, you know, it, it's a sitcom, obviously, but that relatively, like, harsh, grim reality to the insanity of Mr. T as your bodyguard. I, I stand by my opinion that that was just sort of a demented experience watching those two, even though, yes, absolutely, they were much more substantial. I agree. The experience of watching those two was really fun. And in a lot of ways, that's really where where the good stuff was. Again, I, I will give a sort of tempered, you know, pat on the back to Everybody Loves Raymond that I do find amidst all of the late 90s ugliness that, that we both get aggravated by. I think there is something in the humor that makes me, you know, always chuckle a few times in the show. And in a lot of those episodes, you can boil down the conflict between the spouses, you know, the main spouses to something that 
is an actual issue that they kind of chew over a little bit. And, you know, it's not just a bunch of barbs and insults and put downs. Yeah. And as for Hannah Montana, look, again, we we like iCarly more, but I think it kind of applies to all of those. Like, we're not going to cover those kinds of shows that often because they don't have a lot to say. They are kind of obnoxious in the way that they're produced. But in small doses, they're fun. You know, the aesthetic of those Nickelodeon or Disney Channel shows are fun. Young Miley is a kind of engaging performer, even if she's not, like I said, you know, she's not Lucille Ball or even Jennifer Aniston. She's, you know. Oh, she is much more a musician. Yeah. Like we said, this... This took a sort of unanswerable issue, you know, or or a sort of problem that doesn't have any clear solution. And it just gave us so many different perspectives on it, if not any real like solutions or like concrete insights. But yeah, this this was a good one. All right. So much for the bullies. What are we talking about next week? Next week, we are watching our one-season wonders. We're going to watch the pilots of Square Pegs, The Jackie Thomas Show, The Class, and Trophy Wife. Yep, that's next week. And until then, we will consider this segment of the sitcom study concluded. Thank you for listening to The Sitcom Study. Tell us what you think or share your own TV tropes and topic ideas by sending a self-addressed stamped email to sitcomstudypodcast at gmail.com or find us on Facebook or Instagram. And if you like the show, consider leaving a rating or review on your podcast app. It helps us boost those precious Nielsen ratings. The Sitcom Study is recorded in front of a live studio dog. (laughs) 